0: This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government
1: Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Agency heads across government have a 60-day deadline to move money and people to prioritize cloud adoption and zero trust. According to a new executive order President Biden signed Wednesday, the EO says the Office of Management and Budget, the Homeland Security Department and the General Services Administration will issue a cloud security strategy by August. FedScoop reports civilian agencies have six months to start multi-factor authentication and encryption programs. 112 new actions in 29 new areas are on the new fragmentation, overlap and duplication list from the Government Accountability Office. Comptroller General Gene Dadaro says his agency's work on the annual list has returned tens of billions of dollars to the government in savings or cost avoidance. Exec. reports the list includes opportunities for the Defense Department, Health and Human Services, and the Office of Management and Budget. 22 of the Army's 35 modernization priorities will deliver capabilities within the next four years, according to the leader of Army Futures Command. General Mike Murray says the Army will continue with its modernization plan no matter what its top-line budget is. Breaking Defense reports Murray says the Army's down to, quote, almost impossible choices when it looks for cost-cutting. The Chief Information Officer of the United States, Claire Martorana, says the huge cash increase in the Technology Modernization Fund means agencies can propose bigger projects. Federal News Network reports Martorana says the TMF board's ready to handle a big influx of applications. Mark Foreman is former EGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. I call you the former federal CIO, Mark. I hope you'll forgive me for the uh, protocol breach. Um, you wrote recently the most important element of any modernization case, TMF board or not, is the business case. Where do agencies go wrong on their business cases, Mark?
2: I think the capabilities to do business cases have deteriorated over time as agencies have viewed this as kind of a paperwork exercise. And that goes all the way up to their investment review boards, their executive team that was supposed to review the business case. That's become uh, kind of a, uh, a check the box. I really like the way Daniel Kahneman in his uh, book, thinking fast and slow called it delusional optimism. Everybody thinks that, uh, Together they can do a better job than before, but the Standish Group keeps saying, we're at 13% success rates for government IT projects.
1: What makes people think that? What's, what's in people's heads that makes them think this time will be different? Well,
2: look, I think it's, it's that they are uh, confident in themselves. Uh, they've they've uh, developed that to be at a senior level in their career but they're not willing to do the work that needs to be done. And we continue in government to have this issue of poor requirements definition. So, uh, I think this has to start with an understanding of how do you fundamentally simplify the business processes? How do you improve your responsiveness and response time in helping the citizens? And that means taking advantage of new practices like user centered design and and human centered design. But working that into the requirements process. Of course, the other part of this is people underestimate the magnitude of risk that they have to manage. And so in the business case, they really ought to be able to estimate what's the probability we'll achieve these these benefits and do a valid assessment of risk. The Project Management Institute for years has said there's six categories of risk you ought to look at. And OMB and the klinger Cone Act, the uh, EGOV Act, a number of these laws said you need to include not your best guess at cost, but your risk-weighted cost estimate, your risk-weighted schedule. And I think when agencies do a good job of understanding their requirements, evaluating their alternatives, and then doing a risk management plan, they have success. And if not, they fall in that 87% bucket of failures or not achieving their outcome desires.
1: Your friend and mine, Casey Coleman, was on the program recently talking about the need to update some of those pieces of legislation you just referenced. Uh, several of those you were intimately involved with. What should those updates look like or are they even necessary in your view, Mark?
2: I think it's premature to update the legislation. Legislation doesn't say use Waterfall or don't use Waterfall. It doesn't say use Agile or DevOps or uh, um, use the contractor or don't use the contractor. But legislation basically says is Congress needs accountability on the money. You know, I, I hear the, the term $100 billion and $90 billion being spent on IT. The government basically more than doubled in size over the last year. And intuitively, we know there has to be somewhere around a very substantial increase, whether it's $10 billion or $100 billion, we don't quite know. Those numbers are being hidden now, what's actually being spent on government IT, especially this year. So the laws require accountability and they set up a structure for that. What I think needs to be done before we change the laws or modify the laws, is a good set of hearings to get at the chronic issue that programs own the funding, they buy their own IT, they don't trust or they don't use the expertise of their CIO organization. Uh, And generally, that uh, has to get addressed on the leadership side of agencies. You know, we've had a lot of hearing of CIOs. We rarely hear the agency heads uh, where agencies have program problems. Um, Maybe you see it in authorizing committees, we don't see it in the government affairs type committees and I think that's where any changes in the legislation have to occur how do we get the accountability for the money being spent better
1: we just have a little bit of time left I'd be remiss in having a former federal CIO on the day after the cyber executive order and not ask you about it what was your takeaway from it Mark you warned me in 2006 about the dangers of bolting on cybersecurity to to government systems and programs
2: well, I think it's, it's great to have uh, these follow-up actions like the, these uh, uh, boards that are in there. Um, uh, I do think we need more modern uh, elements, but encryption's always been required. That's, that's kind of the uh, touchstone for government getting to some cybersecurity. The real value, I think, is now the shift to zero trust approaches. role-based security has kind of lived its course. We've known this in in audits for the last several years that um, a lot of the the problems occur because of the limitation on role-based security. So uh, now, though, we get back to this issue of agency heads. I don't think there's a CIO that says that we shouldn't do cybersecurity, but I don't think that the agency heads have really embraced the commitment by the program offices that again, own most of the money, they own the applications, to really ensuring the security of those applications. And a zero trust approach is gonna force that debate to the forefront. So I think that's really good.
1: Mark Foreman, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Up next, should another new military service be on the docket straight ahead on Government Matters, prepping a cyber force to anticipate and prevent cyber war? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. Deputy Secretary of Defense Kath Hicks is reviewing the joint all-domain command and control strategy the Joint Chiefs of Staff have submitted for approval. The success of JADC2 depends on the quality and security of the data that flows through it. The solution to that security may be a dedicated cyber force. Lieutenant General David Barno, U.S. Army retired, Dr. Nora Bensahel are visiting professors of strategic studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. They're co-authors of Adaption Under Fire, How Militaries Change in Wartime, and they're writing in War on the Rocks about establishing a cyber force. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for coming back on the program. Nora, I start with you. What would a dedicated cyber force do that the services don't do now?
3: Well, it would focus exclusively on cyberspace as an entirely new domain of warfare. All of the individual services have cyber forces within their force structure. But if you're in the army, you are looking at the world through the land domain. If you're in the Navy, you're looking at things through the sea and maritime domain. Uh, And if you're the Air Force, you're looking at the air. If you're the Space Force, you're looking at outer space. It makes sense since cyber is now the oxygen upon which the military runs, not to mention the rest of American society, as we know all too well this week, it makes sense that the military have a force that is dedicated to looking solely through the lens of cyber conflict and to prepare for that type of warfare in the future.
1: Dave, welcome. Uh, is the, are the arguments for establishing a cyber force similar to the arguments for establishing a space force?
4: We think there are some similarities there in that the, you have an entirely, as Nora pointed out, a new domain of warfare. And this domain is unlike all the other domains. It's not a physical domain. There's no boundaries of you know, 10,000 feet or oceans or mountain ranges that govern it. It's ubiquitous. It, it's everywhere. And, and the entire U.S. military rides on a backbone of the cyber domain today so as well as as our civil society and every aspect you know we all have iphones or smartphones in our pockets we're all plugged into the internet our banking is all digits online so and we're incredibly vulnerable in this new domain yet we have no military service that actually focuses on it full time so much as the decision was made to look at space in that way and recognize how much dependence we have on space as a nation Our dependence on cyber is actually orders of magnitude greater than our dependence on space. And and given that and given our vulnerabilities and the clear recognition our adversaries are threatening that domain, building a cyber force to look at that, to focus on it, to bring attention to it inside the Pentagon is the right thing to do.
1: I ask that, Dave, because the construct strikes me as, as very similar. You had a space command, you have a cyber command. Uh, elevating that command to a force level seems to make sense. Is is that the path
4: that you could see, Dave, as as a viable way to move forward? I think that's it. one of uh, the a viable option to look at that you could potentially have the U.S. Cyber Command supported by uh, a cyber force. The cyber force would be the train, organize, and equip aspect of cyber warfare. It would do the same functions that a service would do to provide to the unified commands around the world, cyber experts who aren't the same people that go through Marine boot camp or army basic training, may have a very different set of skills and may have different attributes and are certainly gonna be recruited uh, against a different set of standards than what we expect uh, somebody who's wearing a short haircut and can you know max out a PT test, a physical fitness test in the army and the Marines today. Uh,
1: Nora, that's where I wanted to go next. What's the personnel look like inside a cyber force How is that different, if at all, from the cyber warriors that the services are recruiting individually now?
3: Well, exactly as Dave said, they wouldn't have to necessarily meet the same requirements as other people who do in uniform. If their jobs are most likely going to be behind a desk, uh, there's very little reason that they would need to have the same personnel entry standards. It would be a really important way to get the wide variety of talent in the United States in the cyber domain, which resides largely in the private sector, into military service from people who might not consider it otherwise. And uh, we would presume that there would be some element of a, uh, a cyber reserve for this new force that would be able to tap into people who have full-time jobs in Silicon Valley and other tech companies, but would be willing to serve the United States on a part-time basis. I also want to be very clear that what we're talking about, the reason why we're talking about a separate service is to address the military aspects of cyber. We're not saying that the military should take responsibility for all cybersecurity in the country. We think purely within the military lane, though, there's a really good and compelling case for a separate service. And in fact, we advocated for a separate cyber service several years ago before Space Force was even created. Given everything that's happened since then, we think it's even more important now.
1: One of the things, Nora, that I enjoy about reading your work uh, in conjunction with Dave is that you anticipate rebuttals and provide rebuttals to the anticipated rebuttals. What do you see as the potential arguments against the cyber force? And why do you think those arguments aren't aren't viable?
3: There are a number. One of them is that it would make the Joint Chiefs of Staff too big and unwieldy to add yet another service member. We don't think that's the case, especially in, in such an important area. Uh, but Dave has made a, a really good analogy with the resistance to creating a new air service with the Army, and I'll let him, uh, let him share that.
4: Dave? No, I'd say, you know, we we went through the same uh, debate in standing up the U.S. Air Force, which took basically 45 years from the invention of the airplane until we had a separate air service in the United States following World War II. And the Army and the Navy fought the development of a separate air force for decades. And and only after World War II and the incredible contributions of air power to victory in World War II were recognized were those barriers broken down. And when there's a recognition that air power is a domain of its own, and and a separate air force is the only way you're going to break those traditional ties to land power, to wars on land or wars at sea, to think of this domain creatively and to have the advocacy for the domain inside those incredibly important meetings in the, in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So you need somebody on the Joint Chiefs and you need to have somebody that's constantly advocating for what this domain means that's different than the Army or the Navy. Will be interesting
1: to see who the Hap Arnold of cyber would be. Dave Barno, Nora Bensahel, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Great to be here. You can find a link to that piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Up next, the push for a national technology strategy. Straight ahead on GovMatters, an enterprise approach to a government-wide problem. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The surge of money for the Technology Modernization Fund mean agencies will prioritize updates to legacy technology systems. Some experts say a national technology strategy is overdue to coordinate tech and innovation. Aineke Riekenen is a research assistant in the Technology and National Security Program, the Center for a New American Security. She and her colleagues are writing about the possibility of such a strategy. Aineke welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the current state of such a strategy for technology and innovation? Is there even such a thing?
5: It seems to be a work in progress. And I'm happy to say it seems to be a, a matter of bipartisan interest. Um, in October, we had the Trump administration come out with a national strategy for critical and emerging technologies. Um, Unfortunately, it was a little light on details. Um, In January, um, then President-elect Biden wrote to his um, science advisor nominee um, to request that he um, establish some general strategies, specific actions and new structures that the federal government Um, can implement in pursuit of a national technology strategy. And so while we haven't seen a very substantive one materialize, um, I'm happy to see that it seems to be very much in motion.
1: Many uh, recommendations that you and your colleagues make, and they fit into a couple of categories. The first category is strategy development. Uh, Where are the the greatest shortfalls, the greatest needs in strategy development, Einikey?
5: Yes, yeah, so far, I think when we look at um, what does it mean for the United States to compete internationally, um, we've very much taken an ad hoc approach so far um, in the past couple of years, You know, seeing um, sort of ad hoc export controls, trying to ban certain companies, um, all under this umbrella of this emerging recognition um, that uh, national security, economic prosperity, and science and technology are very closely intertwined. And so in terms of development of a strategy, some things that we would really love to see um, is actually appointment of a deputy national security advisor that's dedicated to this, um, someone who can speak with the Office of Science and Technology Policy, the National Economic Council, um, and the National Security Council to kind of de-conflict these three different interests and do a really thorough inventory of what tools are available, how do we deconflict their use, and how do we maximize the use of all of them.
1: I was looking at one of the recommendations in this area in particular because I love the way, I love the turn of phrase, exercise realistic responsibility. And you and your colleagues, right, strategy drafters should closely audit and support implementation plans and, and at, at, rather than leaving them to the, the, the agency's own devices. How did you come about that term? Because I think that's an interesting way of putting it, Heineke.
5: Absolutely. I think one of the challenges in government is, you know, obviously we have a lot, a lot of talented people, but with this comes um, a lot of inertia as well. Um, And historically, some of the cultural inertia is um, an aversion or, you know, severe allergy to this idea of industrial policy. And so because we're sort of advocating for a cultural shift and the use of tools to new purposes, um we felt it would probably be helpful to have that top-down guidance that says here's exactly what we're trying to do and here's how you can help us do it
1: the second bucket of recommendations is strategy implementation where do you think there is potential there for either great success or challenges
5: i think some of the challenges will be in talent acquisition getting the right people in government Um, uniquely technology is really driven by the private sector and so we do need that expertise um, because we're looking at economic prosperity, national security, um, and science and technology, we also need people who have very interdisciplinary backgrounds. And so, how do you cultivate um, that interagency, you know, collaboration in a way that's um, coherent? I think that's those are some of the biggest challenges that I see.
1: The third bucket that you and your colleagues write about is strategy, monitoring, and evaluation. I note there's really only one recommendation that you make in that area, Inaki.
5: Uh, yes, and our recommendation is that there needs to be some framework that's repeatable and transparent. Obviously, we live in a democracy, which means the input of the American people is um, immensely important. Um, in the past few years, um, amongst a couple of different government agencies, we've seen some random top 10 lists of priority technologies not always fully fleshed out why you know they're important or how they're being pursued. Um, and also given that technological development happens on such a quick scale, um, we really recommend that the administration, you know, keep coming back to the strategy, to the technology areas they're looking at and keep reconsidering, you know, how is this changing and how do we need to adapt and how do we need to then address you know, emerging trends we see on the horizon.
1: What gets at that repeatability issue that you write about there? Because that strikes me as the one that potentially has been difficult for uh, the federal government as a whole and agencies in particular in the past.
5: Right. I think a lot of what's been happening is um, improvising when thinking about, you know, how do we deal with technology competition? And so um, I think having some framework that um, agencies and the executive can return to is important to have, you know, that kind of guiding pathway and also to have a common set of criteria to do their assessments in Um, certainly this issue is not going away anytime soon and so while it's an emerging issue you know i think i think this is something we're going to have to really get down uh, in the coming years
1: you and your colleagues wrap this up by writing the united states has in recent years found a rare moment of bipartisan agreement uh, about this problem and you addressed that at the beginning of this conversation how to capitalize on that i suppose is the question at this point right eineke
5: Right, I think we can capitalize on momentum um, for better or worse, you know, the United States is um, entering you know, what a lot of people have been calling great power competition. Um, and while in some ways, I think it's a shame that we need to identify an adversary to get ourselves together. I think the positive thing that can come out of it is that it gives us an area um, across both parties to really focus on and think about what are the hazards, um, who as a country we want to be domestically and internationally, especially given um, the giant impact of technology on, you know, our day-to-day lives, governance um, for not just ourselves, but people around the world.
1: Eineke and thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program.
5: Thank you so much.
1: You can find a link to that report at govmatters.tv resources. And don't forget, if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too. You get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose.
0: Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit GovMatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with
1: Tony Bardo of Hughes, Tony Bardo's assistant vice president for government solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the enterprise infrastructure solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony?
0: It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology. Um, for 20 years, and, and basically this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services, and the government needs the the network to, to step up to those uh, expectations.
1: This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that... The agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract.
0: GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of services. Uh, Frankly, the the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded, but GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there they need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services but there are multiple platforms agencies should really meet with the primes and say here's what i want here's what i want here's where i want to go over the next 10 to 15 years
1: time is of the essence it strikes me tony because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded um if you're just starting this process at the beginning. First of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball?
0: Well, I I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an rfp or a format that asks for older technology there are and and there are unfortunately francis a number of rfps and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff and it's it's like the the to, to some extent i'm 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 advocating for timeline be damned you ought to stop stop the presses